Good afternoon to everybody. Um, I hope everyone has a source sheet. Um, we'll, we'll be learning together with a source sheet and also a PowerPoint. And some of the material is not on the source sheet, but on the PowerPoint, so I hope everyone can see the screen. Rashi, he didn't write a formal introduction to his Bible commentary, nor did he write philosophical essays. His commentary is concise. He explains the biblical text verse by verse. His explanations are largely taken from the Midrashic literature. With so much of his commentary being drawn and based on the Midrash and the Talmud, is it possible to even ask, what is Rashi's outlook regarding a certain topic? What are his personal beliefs? Is a topic on selection even possible? Nechama Leibwitz would emphatically answer no. Change your topic. As she writes, Rashi made use of Midrashim only when they respond to a question raised by the written text, resolve some difficulty, cut through a knot, or fill in a gap, which is to say, when they help the reader understand the verse. He does not cite Midrashim to adorn words of Torah with rabbinic pearls, to engage in mere homiletics, to preach morality, or for other similar reasons. Rashi was not guided in his exegetical work by his broad perspective, his beliefs and opinions, or his personal experience. The biblical text itself, the wording of scripture, provided his context. Nahama believed that Rashi's commentary should no light on his personal worldview. He's there for one motive only, to explain a difficulty in the biblical text. But in the last 20 years, scholars have started to question Nechama's conclusion, and they believe that Rashi's Bible commentaries were written not only because of methodological consideration, but other reasons as well, which shed light upon Rashi's own worldview. One of the first professors to pave the path was a professor by the name of Dov Raphael. He wrote a small book entitled Rashi's View of the World. And from the title of the book, we understand that he felt that from Rashi's commentary, we could glean Rashi's view of the world. And this is just one quote from that book. From our perspective, if it is clear that the idea does not flow from the verse itself, that proves the idea to be part of Rashi's intellectual world. For if the idea is not the correct interpretation of the verse, why would Rashi have cited it at all were it not, were it not correct in its own right? Professor Tweeto writes, as a rule, a dual interpretation, a double interpretation of Rashi indicates that one interpretation fits well with Rashi's overall understanding, but is weaker as an explanation of the wording of the verse, while the second interpretation is better exegetically, but does not blend in with the work's overall theoretical approach. These scholars believe that hints to Rashi's inner world can be gleaned through a close examination of his commentary. How do we go about it? What methodological criteria do we use? I'd like to propose the following four criteria. Criteria number one, originality. When we see a commentary of Rashi and we have no known source, we don't know where Rashi drew it from, then perhaps we can say that it came from himself. I just want to, one word of caution. We know that the Midrashic compendiums that stood before Rashi are somewhat different than the Midrashic compendiums that we have today. For example, it, it's occur, it occurs in Rashi's commentary. Rashi will say the following Midrash is from Rashid Rabbah. But the Rashid Rabbah that we have in front of us today does not have that midrash. So we might something is, is think that something is original of Rashi, but we can't say that it's 100% because his midrashic collection might have been different than ours. But certainly, if we don't find a source, that's an indication that perhaps 
that sheds light on Rashi's own worldview. Criteria number two, reformulation, to examine changes that he made in comparison to his source. Perhaps these changes are a window into what Rashi actually felt. A third criteria that we can use is selection or omission. Consider other midrashim, which he could have chosen, but he didn't. And the fourth criteria, repetition. An idea or theme that is mentioned numerous times, time and time again, telling us that this is an important value or idea that Rashi wants to teach us. I'm warning you now, you have to put on your thinking caps. It's right after lunch. It's a time where a lot of people fall asleep. I won't take it personally, but this is a textually based class because it has to be. You can see by the criteria. We have to look at the words. We have to compare. If not, we can't detect the changes that Rashi made or the indications of Rashi's worldview. So enough talking. Let's begin. Look at source number one. In the beginning of the world, we're told in Sefer Breshit, Vayomer Elohim Adam Kidmotenu. God said, let us make man in our form and in our image. And we all know that the word na'aseh, let us, the plural is problematic. After all, there's only one God in the world. Why are we using the plural? So Rashi brings two explanations regarding the use of the plural. Let's read them now. And I just want to point out that I had a really hard time with the source sheet. I didn't know. Should we have English and Hebrew, only Hebrew, only English? It was a really a big decision. On one hand, I could only, it's an English-speaking lecture. I could just bring English. But you can't do that. It's very important to bring the Hebrew because the Hebrew is the basis on which the English is translated, and sometimes the translations aren't that good. So we're going to skip, we're going to jump between Hebrew and English, but just realize that methodologically it was a very, very difficult decision whether to bring both. Also realize both take up a lot of space on the handout. Alrighty, so I had to be really careful what I put on. Um, in any event, Nase Adam number one. I added the number one. Rashi doesn't have a number one. We learn God's humility from here. Because man is going to be created in the image of the angels and they will be jealous of him. Therefore he consulted with them. And now Rashi is going to bring two proofs from the Bible that there's this concept of God consulting with the angels. Source number, uh, uh, proof number one. And when he was judging the kings, he consulted with his, his entourage. We know regarding the king Ahab that the prophet Micha says, the, the prophet Micha has a vision, and he sees God sitting on his throne, surrounded by angels. Does God have right and left? Right and left here mean um, justice and um, mercy, and he was consulting with the angels regarding how to judge whether using mercy or justice. Proof number two that there is a concept of an entourage of angels who are connected with God I'm on line It says in the book of Daniel, by the decree of angels is the word, and by the statement of holy ones is the edict. So we see here that the holy ones, the angels, are involved in edicts that emanate from God. So to here, in the beginning of the creation of man, he is consulting with his angels. He said to them, 
In the upper realms are those in my likeness, meaning you. If in the lower realm there isn't someone who has a likeness to us, there will be jealousy in creation. Let's compare Rashi to his source. Um, I try to color code it for you. I know in the back it's a little small. I apologize. But um, we'll read it and then we'll, we'll compare. The first, skip the red for a moment. The brown is telling us that a concern of God regarding the creation of man was jealousy. He begins his commentary saying he doesn't want jealousy and he ends the comment with jealousy. And that's why he's consulting with the angels. The concept of jealousy and the creation of man is found on the third source, Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer. Alright, so this, this source is talking about the angels, man, and jealousy. The next thing that we saw is he brings two proofs that there are angels in the sky that consult with God. Um, that he has a palmalia, that he has an entourage, and that is the purple. The purple talks about the entourage, and the purple in Rashi all talk, talk, brings the source from Sefer Daniel, the book of Daniel. Look at your four, for the first source on the, on the left-hand column, and that's the Gemara Sanhedrin. Amar Rebbe Yochanan, Ein HaKadosh Baruch Hu Davar El Nimlach BePalmalia Shalmala. He consults his entourage. And then, he, and then the source brings the, book, the quote from Sefer Daniel. The second source that Rashi brought was right and left, and that's the green, and that comes from Shir Hashirim Rabbah, the green source in the middle. It is not unusual that Rashi's commentary is composed from different sources. Rashi is not a mere anthology of Midrashi collections. Rashi edited and molded Midrashim to, so that they fit the verse in the appropriate fashion. So if we compare Rashi to a source, we see that he took from three sources, he molded them together. But what did Rashi add himself that is not found in any of the sources that we saw? The opening words. The humility of God we learn from here. Now clearly we can glean this concept of humility from the sources themselves. But Rashi wanted to make it very clear to his reader. Humility of God is very, very important. The uh, the ideal of humility, the value is important. And Rashi saw fit to add it at the beginning of his comment. Let's look now back in our source sheet at Rashi number two. Rashi goes on to say, Even though the angels did not help in the creation of man, and heretics can claim supremacy and say, oh, here's proof that there's more than one God in the world. After all, it says we will make man. And we know that Christianity believes in the Trinity. And we know that before Christianity, there were religions that believed in dual, they were dualists, they believed in two gods. So even though this verse is asking for problems and saying, Hey, here, here's a proof in your Bible that there's more than one God. Rashi goes on. Lo Still, the text didn't stop us from teaching us the important lesson of proper conduct and humility. That the more important should take and consult with the less important. If we compare Rashi to a source, and here it's only one source, Breshit Rabbah, we see that this whole idea of that the heretics can claim supremacy is found in the Breshit Rabbah. But what did Rashi add on his own? That from here we learn proper conduct and the midat anava, the, uh, the value of 
humility. Once again, Rashi wants to make it very clear this is an important value. The third time in Parshat Breshit that we hear about humility is source number three. They build the Tower of Babel, and God is not happy with this tower. And it says in source number three, let us go down, and let's mix up their languages so they can't listen and understand one another and build the tower. What does Rashi write? Hava nerda, the Beit Dino Nimlach. He conferred with his court, his upper court, because of his extreme humility. And if we compare Rashi to a source once again, you see that the words humility, and here it's actually extreme humility, um, are not found in a source. They're added by Rashi himself. So it seems very clear that in the beginning of his, parash, of his, of his commentary to Sefer Breshit, Rashi felt the importance of emphasizing the humility, the attribute of humility. Let's move on. Kohelet, chapter 1, describes the cyclical, cyclical nature of the world. One generation comes and one generation goes, but the world remains forever. What does Rashi comment? Look at source number 4. The Haaretz le'olam omedet. Umi heim hamit kaimim. Who are those who endure? Ha'anavim, ha'nemuchim, ha'megi'im atzman la'aretz. Okay, who are those who endure? Those who are humble and those who are lowly. Rashi is connecting the word aretz, ground, with those who are humble, who lower themselves to the ground. We have no source for this comment of Rashi. This seems like an original Rashi comment. Look at source number five. Sefer, the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic, which was the international language of the Persian Empire. Chapter 7 describes one of Daniel's visions. In his visions, the four world empires are compared to beasts, in contrast to Israel, who is compared to a human being. Let's see what Rashi says. Source number 5. And he gave him dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and tongues shall serve him. What does Rashi write? And he gave him dominion. And to that man he gave dominion, for the nation he compares to beasts, and Israel he compares to a man because they are humble, innocent, and weak. And the tanin mean the chalashim. Of all the attributes which differentiate man from beast, there are many. What is the first attribute that Rashi chooses? Humility. We have no source for Rashi's comment. This seems to be an original Rashi comment. If you look at the screen, in the book of Zechariah, one of the last books of the Tanakh, there's a description of a king who comes. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and redeemed, yet poor, riding on an ass, on a donkey, followed by a she-ass. Okay, what does Rashi write regarding this vision? This is referring to the king Messiah. Because it says in these verses, that he ruled from sea to sea. During the Second Temple period, we had no one who ruled from sea to sea, so obviously this prophecy has not come to fruition, and it's for the future. Ani, poor, what does Rashi write? Anvitanan, what does that mean? Humble. V'rochev al-chamor midat anavahi. Riding on a donkey, this is the attribute of humility. The first comment, poor meaning not poor in material goods, but being humble, comes from the Aramaic translation of the text. But the second phrase, that the chamor, the donkey, is linked to humility, that is an original to Rashi. Now, is that so? 
is it really true that the, the donkey is always cons- linked to the concept of humility? So we have two sukim from Sefer Shoftim, which clearly contradict this idea. The second one is more straightforward. It talks about one of the, the one of the Shoftim, one of the judges, who had forty sons and thirty grandsons riding on seventy donkeys. Now, obviously, this verse is here to, to, tell, to show us how wealthy he was and how important he was. So clearly, the chamor, the donkeys, are not always associated with with poverty. And the first phrase is talking, Shirat Devorah talks about, she talks about the different tribes that came to help during the war. And she talks about you riders on white she-asses, you who sit on saddle rugs, meaning they have possessions, and you wayfarers declare it God's glory. So once again, we see that the donkey is not necessarily equated with humility. Yet, clearly, Rashi's emphasis on humility with regards to the King Messiah indicates the importance of his attribute in his set of values. Rashi not only emphasizes the importance of humility, but also condemns arrogance, the opposing characteristic. This is a source I think that most of you are familiar with. The Benot Slachad come to Moshe and they ask, our father died without sons, can we inherit the land? And what happens? Moshe doesn't know the answer, and Moshe has to what? Has to turn to God. What does Rashi write on this, on this in a specific case? Nit'almami menu halacha. The law disappeared from Moshe. Vekan niframi menu, and here he was punished. Al shenatal atarad omar, that he took the crown saying, v'hadavar asher yakshem mikem takrivun elai, the hard cases bring to me. According to the Midrash, Rashi is based on the Midrash. He's being punished here, Moshe, because earlier, when they appoint the 70 judges, what does Moshe say to them? Should they bring all their cases to Moshe? No. You can judge what? The easy cases, and I'll take the harder ones. This is conceit. Who is Moshe to say something like that? So therefore, here's the case where what? Moshe doesn't know the answer, and who does Moshe have to turn to? Turn to God. Okay, so here Moshe is being condemned. um, He's being punished for his conceit or his arrogance. Is it justified? Is this justified criticism? After all, this was Yitro's advice, his father-in-law. And if you look on the right-hand column, what did Yitro tell him? You're, too, you're, you're tired. It's not good for you or the nation to be there all day. And Yitro goes on to say, let them, the judges, judge the people at all times. Have them bring every major dispute to you. But let them decide ever, my, every minor dispute. And what? And that's, in a sense, what Moshe did. Yet, in the eyes of the Midrash and in the eyes of Rashi, it was, it's inappropriate. It smells a little bit of conceit. And therefore, he's chastised for doing so. Not only does Rashi write about humility, but we know that Rashi was humble himself. And we can see this through his Bible commentary. If you look at source number six, and this is one example of many, regarding the, a certain Pesuk and Sefer Brace sheet, what does Rashi write? Eni yodea ma melamdenu. I do not know what this phrase comes to teach. The words, I do not know, appear over 50 times in Rashi's Bible commentary and over 100 times in Rashi's Talmudic commentary. Rashi was not embarrassed to say, I don't know, and to write it in his commentary. But it goes even a step further. There was a scholar by the name of Shmuel of Oxier, and he was a Talmud Chacham. And he sent a letter to Rashi saying, Rashi, 
There's certain places in your commentary to Yirmiyahu and Yechezkel where there are contradictions. I don't understand them. Can you please explain to me what you meant? And we luckily have the answer. Um, it's it's not it's found in manuscripts and it's also found in the Haketer edition of Sefer Yechezkel put up by Barilam University in the back. We have the answer that Rashi wrote to this scholar Rav Shmuel Oxier. And regarding question number ten, okay, you, it's on your sheet, but it's also here on the board if you want to see it. Notice what Rashi writes. Right, I'm on the arrow on the left side. Umikol makom, the last two words. In any event, ani ta'iti perush. I made a mistake in that interpretation. And he goes on to explain the mistake. Lower the last line. Visatru dvarai ze'etze. And my words contradicted one another. Va'ata asakti ba'im achenu shmaya v'higatiha. And now I've worked on it with my secretary, Rabbi Nushmaya. Um, if anyone was here two years ago, is anyone here two years ago? Okay, well, I'm very proud. Already we talked about Rabbi Nushmaya. And we ha- I have corrected my interpretation based on your letter. How many of us are willing to verbalize the words, I made a mistake? How many of us are willing to write down the words, I made a mistake? But Rashi, with, 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 with real humility, was willing to write it and send the letter, and we have it. One can conclude from all that we've seen that the attribute of humility was central in Rashi's world of values. The directive to be humble applies to all human beings, laymen and leaders, and even the King Messiah. Woe to the person who exhibits even a semblance of arrogance. If God himself, the creator of the world, created the world with humility, how much more so every one of us? And if we go back to our list of criteria, how do we detect that this is an important value in Rashi's repertoire? So which of these would you say have come to light in what we've just done? Which of these four criteria do they want to... Are the originality? Repetition? Okay, so those are the two that I chose. Originality and repetition. And of course, there could be others as well. Until now, um, we focus on an attribute and seeing how that attribute was significant to Rashi. Now I'd like to do something a little bit different. I want to focus on a biblical personality and see how Rashi's treatment of that personality sheds light upon Rashi's worldview. The biblical text in Breshit portrays Esau as a hunter, a man of the field. Esau seems more concerned with the physical realm and the spiritual, as when we see that when he hastily sells his birthright for a bowl of lentils. Yet Asaph has some redeeming qualities, such as the sensitivity that he shows his father. Let us see how Rashi's commentary depicts Asaph, what qualities of Asaph are highlighted, and why. We get our first sense of Asaph even before he's born, and this is source number eight, and this is a source that I think all of us learned when we were probably in first or second grade um, in elementary school. Verse number eight, it says, Rivka is pregnant with the twins, and it says, and they're struggling within her womb. And she goes to seek out God because she's having this unusual pregnancy. And what does Rashi write? Go to the last word on the line. Our rabbis explain. The word comes from the word to run. 
Overet al pitre Torah shoshem ve'eber Yaakov rat in the farchets latzeit. When they would pass by a house of Torah study, Yaakov would run and struggle in the womb to get out. Overet al pitre avodah zara esav mefarches latzeit. And when they would pass by a house of idol worship, esav would try to come out of the womb. According to Rashi, the word vayitro tzu comes from the word larutz, meaning that already when they're in the womb, their tendencies, their spiritual tendencies, were evident. Rashi brings this midrash, even though this midrash clearly contradicts the opinion of the Gemara. The Talmud Sanhedrin tells us, and Antoninos also asks Rebbe, from where does the evil inclination have influence over a person? Is it from the moment of the embryo's formation or from the moment of its birth? Rebbe said to him, from the moment of the embryo's formation. Antoninos said to him, if so, the fetus would kick against its mother's womb and leave the womb prematurely. Must it not be rather that the evil inclination begins to have influence over a person from the moment of birth? This matter did Antoninos teach me, and scripture supports him, for it is stated, sin crouches at the door. Despite the fact that Rashi's first explanation regarding the, in the womb, their spiritual tendencies, contradicts this Gemara, despite the fact, even so, Rashi brought it in his commentary. And Rashi brings other comments regarding the idolatry with it connected to Asaph and, and his family. And you can see that I brought it to you in parentheses here. We don't have time to do everything, but a little homework for you to go home. And you can look them up and you can look for yourselves. At the age of 40, Asaph decides to marry. And according to Ra- what does Rashi comment regarding this milestone in Asaph's life? Look at source number nine. Ben Arba'im Shana. Kol arba'im shana haya esav sad nashim tachad ba'alehen umane otan. Achaya ben arba'im amar, kishaya ab avi ben arba'im nasa isha af aniken. According to Rashi, for the first 40 years, um, esav would snatch married women and have relations with them. I guess that's a nice way of saying he raped them. When he turned 40, he said, ah, oh, my father married at 40, so too I will marry and be connected to one woman. <laughs> um, Rashi's source is more than one woman. Rashi's source is Breshit Rabbah. Um, and it's, and it's, diffi- it's, it's clearly far, it's not the straightforward meaning of the text. Um, interesting to note that the Rashbam, Rashi's grandson, has a different way of explaining the age of 40. He says, why is the age of 40 of his age mentioned? To explain what happens in the very next scene. In the very, ne- uh, the very next scene, Yitzchak gives a bracha to the wrong son. If Esav is 40 and his father was 60 when he was born, that means at this point, how old is Yitzchak? 100 years old. And that explains why his, his eyesight was dimming and he blessed the wrong son. According to Rashi's commentary, not only is Esav involved in adulterous relationships, but so too are his wives. The name Korach is listed twice in the genealogical tables associated with Esav, if you look at the PowerPoints. The first verse says, Ohalima yalda et yeush ve'et ya'alam ve'et korach. Okay, Ohalima is the mother of korach. Elevene Esav. These are the sons of Esav that were born in Eretz Kanaan. A few psukim later, what are we told? Elu elufei b'nei Esav. These are the clans of the children of Esav. The descendants of Esav's firstborn son, Eliphaz. The clan of korach. These are the clans of Eliphaz in the land of Adon. These are the descendants of Adah. So we have here conflicting evidence. According to the first verse, Korach is the son of Esau, born to Oholilamah. 
According to the second group of Psukim, Korach is the grandson of Esav. His father is Eliphaz, born to Adah. How does Rashi resolve this difficulty? He was a mamzer. He was a son. This Korach was a son of Eliphaz, Esav's son, who had relations with his father's wife. So the idolatrous nature is not only found with Esav, but also with his wife. And just as a point of comparison, how else could we have explained this contradiction? Look what the Ebenezer writes. There are those who say that there were two men with the name Korach. All right? One is Korach, the son of Aholalimah, and one is Korach, the son of Adah. And then he brings a second answer. Um, Rashi was cognizant of these other possibilities because they're actually in the Talmud, but still he chose an explanation that maligns the character of Esav. Um, there are other co- um, commentaries of Rashi and Breshit that talk about the adulterous nature of Esav and his family, and I brought that to places, the Marein Lekomot, in parentheses, and all can look at them when they go home. What other sins was Esav committing? Look at source number 10. Esav comes in from the field. He's very tired and hungry. All right? Vuhu ayef. What is Rashi right? Source number 10. Vuhu ayef. Biritzicha. For murdering. As it says, as my so- and my soul is exhausted by murderers. According to Rashi, the word ayef here means murderer. Because he's tired, exhausted for murdering. And he brings a proof from a verse in Sefer Yirmiyahu. Is this a simple explanation of the text? Clearly not. And if we look at the Ebenezer, just to compare, what does the Ebenezer write? He was exhausted, meaning hungry and thirsty. And he brings a verse from Sefer Yeshayahu where we see that the word tired is connected to being hungry and thirsty. It's interesting to note here that the Ebenezer is refuting Rashi's explanation in a very quiet and subtle way. He brings an explanation of what it means, and he brings a biblical verse to support it. So this seems to be a rebuttal to Rashi, but he does it in a, in a, in a very covetic way because it's Rashi. Um, Rashi's, uh, Asa's propensity to murder is something which is evident even at the time of birth. And if you look at source number 11, what are we told? harishon admoni kulo se'ar shemo And he came out and he was he had he was had reddish color and he was filled with hair and he was called Esav. And what does Rashi write regarding the word Esav? Siman Shiye Shofech Damin. The red is an indication of Esav's violent manner. Now it doesn't say whether it was red hair or red skin, but according to Rashi, based on the Midrash, it has a sinister connotation. But in contrast, who knows what other biblical character is described as red? David HaMelech. Yet regarding David HaMelech, Rashi does not write that the red color points to a sinister personality or behavior. Rashi repeatedly quotes source material that accuses Esau of which sins? What sins are we talking about? What have we seen? The three cardinal sins. The three important sins. These are the hallmark of a Jew. And it's on purpose. Rashi is, is emphasizing by violating these three cardinal principles, Esav demonstrates that he is not interested in being part of the Jewish people. Esav also is accused of theft and deception in Rashi's commentary, and I brought you where you can look on your own. 
But what about what about Asaph's positive qualities? After all, what do we say? A straightforward reading of a text teaches us that what? He had positive qualities. What is the famous positive quality that we all know about? His kiburah, right? And where do we see that? When he sees that the local Canaanite girls are not, they'll not find favor in his parents' eyes, he marries the, children, the wife of Yishmael. Upon losing the blessing, the special blessing from his father, when he gives it to Yaakov, what does he say? After my father dies, I will kill Yaakov. All these actions show that Asa was sensitive to his father and his father's desires. Let's see how Rashi deals with Asa's positive qualities. The following Midrash comments on the fact that Asa left his, left his choicest clothing in his parents' house. Let's see what the Midrash says. Look at source number 12. And this is the clothing that Rivka is going to use to what? To, to, to dress Yaakov. Alrighty? So we're told, Asher ita babayit. She takes the clothing that were in the house that Esav had left in her house. So what does Breshit Rabbah write? And I'll read it in English. Which were with her in their house. In these he used to attend upon his father. Rev Shimon ben Gamliel said, All my lifetime I attended upon my father, yet did not, did not go, for, go do for him a hundredth part of the service which Esav did for his father. I used to attend my father in soiled garments and dirty clothing and go out on the street in clean ones. But when my father, but when Asaph attended to his father, he attended upon him in royal robes. For only royal robe benefit my father's honor. So according to the first idea in the Midrash, Rashi beca- Asa becomes a paradigm of what Kiburav. He left his clothing in his parents' house in order that they should be clean and perfect so that he would only serve his father in clean, unsoiled clothing. What is, Rash, what is the second explanation of the Midrash, which were with her in her house? How many wives had he, yet you say, which were with her? Why did he leave them in the house? But he knew their ways. According to the second explanation of Rashid Rabbah, he knew his wives' ways, and he was suspicious, and he left them there. That's Rashi's source. What is Rashi, right? And you can look on the PowerPoint as well here. Rashi brings the second explanation. What does he leave out? The first. The first explanation, which embellishes and emphasizes the kibud the aim of Asab to his father, Asab's one redeeming quality, what happens? It's omitted. But it goes a step further. We know from the verse that these were big day Asab hachamudot. These were the choice clothing of Asab. Let's look at Breshit Rabbah. The very first, the explanation right before the one, the red one, the one he omitted says, Hachamudot, Ma Shechamad Me Nimrod, which he desired and he received from Nimrod. Nimrod is a negative character in the book of Breshit who rebelled against God. Okay, so Breshit Rabbah has three parts. First, it talks about Nimrod, then it brings, it extols the personality of Asab. And then it gives another interpretation that means he didn't trust his wives. Look on the right-hand column. What does Rashi bring in his commentary? He brings the explanation from Nimrod. He skips the middle one. And he brings the third one, which is a power one regarding Asaph. Meaning, like bookends, he brings the two that are either negative or parav, and he, and, he, and he skips over and deletes the middle. This clearly seems to be what? A conscious decision on Rashi's part. 
to eliminate Asav's positive quality. Let's look at case study number two. And that's source number, source number 13. We know, we know that for 20 years, Yaakov has to run away after he gets the blessing, and he only returns after 20 years. And what is his psychological state as he's coming back after 20 years before he meets Esau? He's very, very fearful. He knows he left in, bad, in very bad in a very bad situation. He, has, he stole bracha from his brother, and he's very fearful about meeting once again. And the biblical text tells us, Vayira Yaakov me'od vayatzer lo. Source number 13. And he became frightened and just very distressed. Regarding the two verbs, Vayira vayatzer, Rashi brings two explanations. Rashi does not believe in synonyms in, in Tanakh. Every word of the Tanakh is holy. Every word has its own meaning. And therefore, if the text writes, Vayira me'od vayatzer lo, it can't mean he was scared and stood there for emphasis. So what does Rashi write? Vayira shema yehareg. He was frightened lest he be killed. Vayetzer lo, and he was distressed, im yeharog hu et acherim, if he would kill someone else. Meaning the two verbs describe two situations. He was scared that lest he be killed, and he was scared lest he kill somebody else. Let's look at Rashi's source, and it's here on the PowerPoint as well. Rashi's source begins with what Rashi brings. He became frightened lest he should be killed. I'm on the left-hand column here on the board. And it distressed him lest he should kill. He said, if he overpowers me, he will kill me. But if I overpower him, I will kill him. And now Rashi's source brings another paragraph. Another paragraph which introduces a new virtue of Esau, which we haven't heard of. He said, Yaakov said, during all these years, Esau has dwelled in Eretz Yisrael. Then perhaps he will attack me in virtue of his having dwelled in Eretz Yisrael. During all these years, he has properly honored his parents. Perhaps in the virtue of honoring his parents, he will overpower me. Rashi brings the first part of Breshit Rabbah. And what does he do? Omits the second. The second, which brings to light and emphasizes two of Esau's virtues. The one that we know about, the Kibbutz Ava'im, and the second one of having dwelled in the land of Israel, not having dwelled in the land of Israel, Esau dwelt in the land of Israel when Yaakov, when Yaakov was away. Is this treatment of Esau extreme on Rashi's part? Or is this typical? And in order to decide, let's compare just very quickly Esau's treatment of Esau with Esau's treatment of two other biblical characters in Sefer Breshit who are part of Abraham's family but were deemed not worthy of, of receiving the special blessing. Who am I referring to? What other two characteristic characters? Yishmael and Lot. Right? Yishmael and Lot came from the family of Abraham. They did not receive the blessing, and they also fathered nations that would come and hurt Israel in the future. Let's see how Rashi treats those characters. Let's see if they have positive qualities. So regarding Yishmael, yes. Yishmael does have positive qualities. We are told that what? He was circumcised at 13 years old, and he raised no objection. Rashi brings that 
in his comment here in the black. Another merit of Yishmael is that he repented. Three times in Rashi's Peyush, the Sefer Breshit, where we're told that Yishmael is Choser Betuvah, who repented before he died. What about Lot? Lot is commended for welcoming guests, something that he learned from the house of Abraham. A second merit of Lot is that he remained silent at a critical time. When they go down to Egypt and Avram says that Sarah is what relation to him? The sister, and that's not really the truth. Lot remained silent. And twice in Rashi's commentary he says that that it's to the merit of Lot. So back to our original question. Is the treatment of Asaph extreme? Yes. Most definitely. Rashi embellishes the sins of Asaph, makes turns him into an idolater, a murderer, an adulterer. And he eliminates totally his positive qualities in contrast to Lot and Ishmael. And the question is why? What is the cause of the vilification of Esau in Rashi's Torah commentary? And it would seem the answer is it's a historical one. In rabbinic thought, Esau is viewed as the progenitor of the, not, not only the biological son of Rivka and Yitzchak, but also the father or the progenitor of the Roman Empire and the Christian Church. And therefore, all the evil things that perpetuated by Esau will be eventually be done and perpetuated by his offspring. This is the concept of Ma'ase Avot Siman Lebanim. Where does this association of Esau and Rome come from? It's really, it seems to be a strange one. Look at source number 14. Rabbi Akiva. The famous Rabbi Akiva, the Talmud Yerushalmi tells us, Tani Amama Rabbi Yehuda ben ben Rabbi Lai, Baruch Rabbi Akiva, my blessed be my my Rabbi, who explained Hakol Kol Yaakov, the Hayadaim Yede Esav. The hand, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esav. Koloshel Yaakov Tzavach Mimash Asulo Yede Esav beBeitar. The voice of Yaakov is shrieking at what Esau has done to him at Betar. Betar is not far from here. What was Betar? Does anybody know? Betar was the last Roman that was the fight against Rome in the rebellion. That was the last bat, one of the last major battles. Okay, so if Esau is associated here with Betar, that means Esau is associated with whom? With Rome. Look at source number fifteen. The Gemara in Gitin says very clearly that Titus is the, the emperor who is responsible for the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. He is described in the second line as Ben Rasha, Ben Beno, Shel, Esav HaRasha. Titus, the Roman general, is considered the great-great-grandson of Esav. And Rashi accepts this identification. Look at source number 16. When Rivka is pregnant, she's told, Shnei goyim You have two nations in your womb. What does Rashi write? Rashi says, Geyim ktiv. The word goyim is written with two yuds. And the word geyim can mean proud ones. The, the Midrash is saying there are two proud ones in your stomach. Who are these two proud ones? An allusion to Antoninus and Rebbe, from whose table neither radish nor lettuce was absent, neither in summer nor in winter. And I remember learning this as a girl and like not, not really understanding what that meant. The concept of seasonal foods, that when you were really, really wealthy and important, you could have food throughout the year. And I always think that's one of the differences between living in America and living in Israel, although in Israel it's come a long way. 
But my friends and I always joke that in America, you can plan your Shabbat menu and then go to the supermarket because you can always find what you need. Whereas in Israel, you have to go to the supermarket and then plan your Shabbat menu. But it's definitely changing. In any event, what is it saying? It's saying the two nations in her womb, one is Rebbe, who is Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi, who is what? Who is the redactor of the Mishnah, is the Jewish people, and Antoninus is whom? The Roman emperor. Okay, so clearly in Rashi's eyes, Esav is what? Esav is Rome. Now, the association of Esav with Rome and Christianity is reciprocal. Not only do Esav's actions portend to his offspring's behavior, but simultaneously all terrible actions perpetuated by his offspring, the Roman Empire, and Christian church are deflected back onto Esav. If the Roman Empire, with, when it accepted Christianity, is renowned for its cruel and savage ways, this brutality must also be present in Esav. And that's why Rashi robs him of all virtue. Rashi was sensitive, was living way after the demise of the Roman Empire. Rashi was living in Europe. Rashi was living during times of sporadic outbreaks of violence, of pogroms, of difficult times for the Jewish people, perpetuated by the Christian church. If Esav equals Rome, Esav equals Christianity, then what? There's nothing good that can be said. Nothing good. And there's a systematic elimination of all of Esav's virtues from Rashi's Torah commentary. Yet surprisingly so, in Rashi's commentary to Nevi'im, there is a slight mention of Esav's virtues. And we're not going to read them. I'm just going to point them out to you. If you look at sources that are 17 and 18, and I'm going to give you that for homework, alrighty, 17 and 18, you can see that Rashi mentions um, the little merit of Edom. Edom is Esav. And he mentions the kibbutz Av. Why does Rashi mention in passing Esav's merit in his commentary, Nevi'im and Ketuvim, but not in his Torah commentary? Why did he do that? In order to strengthen the Jewish people. Jews are saying, why does Christianity flourish and conquer the world? Why is it Rasha Vitovlo? I don't understand Rashi. We're doing the right thing, and we're being destroyed. They're evil, and they're flourishing. And Rashi, as a responsible leader, had to answer his people. He had to give them an answer. He wanted to give them an answer. He wanted to inject hope. So what does he say to them? There's a reason. There's a small merit that the Christian church has. And that merit is what? The kibbutz Av of their ancestor, Esau. But once that kibbutz Av is finished... Once it's been depleted, then Israel will be redeemed and Esau, Rome, and Christianity will fall. And if you go home and do your homework and check out these sources, you will see that the merits of Esau in the later books always come in tandem with one of these two themes, the downfall of Esau and the um, saving and the redemption of the Jewish people. This hypothesis um, fits very nicely into the um, approximate dating of Rashi's commentaries. Scholars believe that Rashi's Torah commentator was written earlier in his life, and the later books of his commentary were written later in his life. We know that the first crusade happened the last decade of Rashi's life, and it seems like the books that he, his commentaries to those books of the Nevi'im and Ketuvim were written then, and therefore the, um, the need to give a theological answer 
to the suffering of the Jewish people was so great that Rashi incorporated it into his, into his commentary to the Naveen and So now I ask you, Rashi's treatment of Esav, his embellishment of his sins, his deletion of his merits from his Torah commentary, and their passing mention in his later commentaries for an explicit purpose, treatment more extreme than any other biblical character, does it not reflect Rashi's inner world of values and ideas? Most definitely, yes. Okay, and if we go back to our criteria checklist regarding the treatment of Esau, you tell me what criteria would you say um, comes to the forefront regarding his treatment? All righty, so the truth is, I think, really, all of them, all of them. And I think this is the most clear case where we see that Rashi's inner world of values plays, it comes, to, comes forth in his Torah comment, in his Tanakh commentary. Um, just an, and it's important to note that it seems there's verbal evidence that Nechama Leibowitz slightly changed her opinion later in life. And she accepted the fact that, yes, Rashi's worldview does seem to sometimes come into his commentary. And the proof is that she taught in Torah College. And um, there's verbal evidence that on her exam question in later years, she asked, where does one see the impact of the first crusade in Rashi's commentary to Nevi'im and Ketuvim? Okay, so even she altered opinion a little bit. The final theme that I'd like to investigate today is the importance of speech in Rashi's commentary. This topic is a very, very large one, and to do it properly would take many sessions, but I want to focus today on really the challenges and the dangers of speech, the prohibition of Lashon Hara, and then talk about another type of speech um, or danger emanating um, from speech through external factors. At the burning bush, at the Sneh, God um, tells Moshe that he's going to go back to Egypt and redeem the, redeem the Jewish people. And Moshe is concerned that people won't believe him. And he says to God, but they, will not, they might not believe me. And God gives him three signs that he should do in front of the Jewish people to prove that he really is being sent by God. What is the first sign? Who remembers? The stick will turn into a snake. The second sign? His hand in his chest and take it out and it will be leprous and then it will become, um, it will be healed. And the third sign will be pouring water on the ground and the water will turn into what? Turn into blood. According to Rashi and the Midrash, the first two signs are hinting to what? To Lashon Hara, that Moshe spoke when he said, the nation may, may not believe me. And if you look on your source sheet, and this is, um, I think these are Midrashim that we're familiar with, alrighty, of source number 19. God asks, Mazeh biyadecha. And Rashi writes, based on the Midrash, Lekach nichtav teva achat. The word Mazeh is written as one word, Lidrosh mizeh. So that you can read it instead of the word Mazeh, rather Mizeh. From this, Shebiyadcha atachayab lilkot. From this in your hand, you have to be punished. Shechashabeshab b'ksherim. That you were suspecting of the innocent. He throws it on the ground by Yehilinachash. What does Rashi write? Ramaz lo shesiper lashon hara al Yisrael v'tafas umnato shel nachash. He was hinting to him that he spoke lashon hara and he adopted the art of the snake. And the concept is the snake in Gan Eden who through his mouth, what did he do? It was lashon hara. He enticed Chava to sin. Regarding the second sign, what does Rashi write? Mitzorat keshelek, it became leprous like snow. 
אך בעוד זה רמז לו שלשון הרע סיפר. So to here, he was sending to the Lashon Hara that he spoke, when he said, Lo, yaaminu li, they will not believe me. Lefichach, hilkahu bitzarat, kimo shelakta miryam alashon hara. Therefore, he was smitten with tzarat, just like miryam. Let's look and see. Let's compare Rashi to a source. Okay, we can see that Rashi's source is Tanchuma Shemot. And if we look at the red on the bottom, we see that Rashi is very similar to a combination of both the Tanchuma and Shemot Rabbah. Look at the red. Another explanation. Moshe said to God, They will surely not believe me nor listen to my voice. Hashem said to him, What is in your hand? It is written as one word, Mazeh. It can be read as Mizeh, from this. From the staff that is in your hand, you need to be punished, because you have slandered my children. Just as a snake uttered slander and said, Just as when the snake uttered slander, I afflicted it with Sarat, so will be the same with you. All right, so the first sign of the snake being a connection to Lashon Hara, he gets from the Tamchuma. The second sign being a connection to Lashon Hara, he gets from Shemot Rabbah. But for a moment now, let's look at the blue. Let's look at the Midrash that Rashi did not choose. Rashi, what could he have chosen? Look at the blue. He said to him, what is in your hand? He said, a staff. He said to him, throw it to the ground. He did it, it became a snake. Why a snake and not some other creature? Almighty said to him, just as a snake kills when it bites, so too do the Egyptians bite and kill B'nai Israel. It became a piece of dry wood, and so will the Egyptians become like dry wood, etc., etc., etc. Notice, the first Midrash, with Rash, with, which Rashi did not choose, is national. It's a message for the Jewish people. Rashi foregoes the message, the national message, and chooses the second part of the Midrash, which is very personal. What's it saying? Moshe spoke Lashon Hara. In Rashi's eyes, the message of Lashon Hara took precedent over the national message which he had chosen if he would have chose that first source. Not only is Moshe accused of speaking Lashon Hara, but so are the prophets Yeshayahu and Eliyahu. Yeshayahu, when he gets his vision of God on the throne, he says, oh, I am a man of unclean lips sitting in an, within an impure nation. And at that point, an angel comes and takes a hot coal and presses it to his lips and says, your sin has been removed. Meaning, his guilt, his feeling of impurity has been removed. Eliyahu says what? I want to re- Eliyahu is fed up with the Jewish people. They're worshiping idols, and he says, I don't want this job anymore, and he runs away, and he falls asleep, and what happened? An angel comes to him and wakes him up and brings him food and water, and according to the food is a cake which was made on hot coals. So the concept of coal, a coal, links the story of Yeshayahu and, Yeshayahu and Eliyahu. Let's see the Midrash that Rashi brings, source number 20. Ritzpa, a hot coal, gachelet, and skips the last four words on the line. Vineemru be'eliyahu u'be'yeshayahu b'tzadi. It says the word ritzpa with the letter tzadi regarding Eliyahu and Yeshayahu. Mipnei she'amru dilitoria al Yisrael, because they spoke ill of Israel. They spoke lashon hara. This one called them a people of unclean lips. And this one said, you have forsaken your covenant. Said God to the angel, break the mouth that spoke ill 
of my children. According to the Midrash here, we have a play on words. The word Rizpah is broken in half. The word Rizpah means a coal. And, it, and they break it in half and they read it, which means what? Break their mouth. In modern terms, I think we would say what? Wash their mouth out with soap. Maybe? Wash their mouth out with soap. But Eliyahu and Yeshayahu are being, are being punished and are being chastised for what? For, for speaking the truth. But they said something negative about the nation and therefore what happens? They deserve, they deserve to be punished and they deserve to be embarrassed. What's the punishment that they're receiving? Rispa, which means what? Break their mouth. Wash their mouth out with soap. But look very interesting at source number 21 in Rashi. Regarding, regarding Eliyahu, we know that Eliyahu is going to be replaced. He doesn't want to be a prophet anymore, and God is going to replace him. And what is, Eliyahu, what is Rashi write on source number 21? Timshach Replace yourself with another Navi. I don't want your prophecy. I don't want your prophecy anymore. Why? Because you spoke evil about B'nai Israel. Now, wait a minute. Why? What is the punishment supposed to be according to the Midrash for speaking evil? To wash their mouth out. Break the mouth. What has Rashi done? He's transferred the punishment and he's made it much more severe. Not only are they going to have their mouths washed out with soap, but what? Eliyahu is going to what? Is going to be replaced. In Rashi's eyes, a leader who does not defend his people, a leader who maligns his people, can no longer be a prophet and loses his right to be a prophet. Clearly we see Rashi's sensitivity to Lashon Hara and slander. The term Lashon Hara is mentioned 36 times in Rashi's commentary. Who is a famous biblical personality who is associated with Lashon Hara? Miriam. How many times is Lashon Hara of Miriam mentioned in the Torah? Does anyone know? Once when it happens, and Zachor in Sefer Dvarim. Let's see what happens with Rashi's commentary. Alrighty, so in Rashi's commentary, Miriam's Lashon Hara is mentioned in source number one when it actually happens. Alrighty, and then it's mentioned again in source number two. But three other times in the Torah, Miriam is mentioned. One is, look at source number three. Say for Shemot, where Moshe takes his hand out of his, right out of his jacket, and he said, just like Miriam. In Sefer Bamibar, when they send the spies, what does the Midrash learn? The spies should have learned from whom? From Miriam not to speak Lashon Hara. And in source number five, um, regarding of the place Chatzera, where it actually happened, her Lashon Hara is mentioned again. Why is Rashi mentioning it five times? Rashi doesn't want to shame her. Why is it being emphasized? And perhaps the purple is the answer. What is Rashi highlighting in the purple? The educational component, the didactic component. He's mentioning Miriam and and emphasizing Miriam. Take a lesson from her. You should have learned from her. Be careful not to be like her. It's such an important message to Rashi that he's reiterating and emphasizing because Lashon Hara, in his mind, slander is so damaging and so dangerous for the nation. 
But once again, Rashi not only talks about Lashon Hara and the, and the importance of refraining from Lashon Hara, but what? He also, we know, was very, spoke, was very careful the way that he spoke. And in one of the responses of Rashi, okay, the Shailotu Chuvot, we find something very, very interesting. We were told, and Ruvain, he received a question by, from the name of, by the man, by the name of a man named Ruvain. And Ruvain, who wrote the question, Rashi writes, I know who he is by recognizing his handwriting. And he was scared to sign his name because he was fearful that I was upset and viewed him as an enemy. This is what Rashi is writing. But I do not feel that way. I will not hold back from giving him a blessing. Only a blessing of good should come to him. The way Rashi writes and the way Rashi treats all those around him, even those who perceive him as an enemy, he could have used that opportunity to slight him, not to answer him. I would think if I was in that situation, what would I do? I don't know. But we see here, once again, Rashi's sensitivity to the way he spoke and the way he treated others. Um, we're running out of time. So there, besides Lashon Hara, Rashi also was sensitive to evil talk that was coming from external forces. And that is referring to the Christians who are proselytizing and trying to convince the Jews of the, of the correctness of Christianity. It was a major problem during Rashi's life. We're just going to read, we're going to look at one source to explain, to show you the problem. In Sefer Mishle, there's a verse that, that, that reads, look at verse 22. Number 22. Better to meet a bereaved bear than a fool with his nonsense. Okay? We know Sefer Mishlei tells you the right way to act in life. What is Rashi, right? May a bereaving bear encounter a person. It is better for a person that a bereaving bear encounter him rather than one of the foolish Christians who incite him to idolatry. In Sefer Mishlei, the incitement of the Christians, their verbal um, actions trying to convert Jews to Christianity is mentioned 16 times. Rashi was hypersensitive to the power of speech and the dangers of speech. I just want to tell you that for the medieval Jew, the Christians would come knocking on their door and say, Isaiah so-and-so says this, what do you say, Jew? And the Jew didn't know what to answer. If I knocked on your door, would you know what to answer from Isaiah so-and-so? So there became, I call them man, they call the handbooks for dummies. Medieval handbooks for dummies, and I have one, an example right here. This is a medieval handbook, an, an edition, a critical edition. It goes by the books of the Tanakh. You open it up, you're a Jew, you open it up, you get to the chapter and the verse. It says, this is what the Christians say, this is what you answer them. Okay? This is, you know, in your home, you had to have a, you had to have a guide what to answer. In any event, the incitement of the Christians was there, and Rashi 16 times talks about the power of speech and the dangers of speech. And it says, he said it's the leaders of the generation who need to, to, to protect the Jewish people. You'll do that on your own. Those are sources 22, 23, and 24. I just want to conclude with the following. Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik writes in the most eloquent way regarding Rashi's commentary to the Talmud. It's very difficult English, so I'll explain a little bit, but try to hang on because it's absolutely beautiful. He says, to all appearances, no work seems less tinctured with the character of the author than that of Rashi. More than any other figure of the Middle Ages, he resembles Keats' poet. Keats is a famous British poet. In that he seems to have no self, to have no identity, but to be constantly informing and filling another body. The historian contemplating his over, his, his literature, Rashi's literature, 
which baffles all search for personality and posture, knows the despair that Schiller spoke of in his encounter with the classics. Wholly unconfiding, the classic poet flees the heart that seeks him. The object possesses him utterly, like a deity behind his universe. He stands behind his work. Misled as I was through acquaintance with modern poets to seek at once a poet in the work, I could not bear that in this instance the poet nowhere to be seized and would nowhere abide my question. The inability to grab on to Rashi. That's what Chaim Soloveitchik is writing about. And then Chaim Soloveitchik concludes, yet, unless we could succeed in seizing the poet, in perceiving the personal and the objective, unless we uncover the possibility of the work which forms a watershed in Jewish history, seeing its contemporary import alongside of its permanent meaning, we shall never truly understand Rashi or fathom his greatness or begin to write the history of Halakha. Chaim Salvechik wrote this regarding Rashi's commentary to Talmud, but I do believe that this, in this, this afternoon, in a very small way, through the use of the four criteria that we presented, that we have managed to seize the poet, to see the personal, to see Rashi between the lines, behind his commentary, and understand the greatness of, the greatness of his commentary in light of the personal imprint that he's left on the commentary. Thank you.